The O3C Podcast is a proud member of the HyperX Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the O3C Podcast. My name's Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend Chris Dow. Psycho Fox. And adulthood friend Minty Booth. Clearing Jinxie's nose. And we are here to chat about our love and appreciation of video gaming games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into this episode, we teased something last week in the announcements, and, uh, well, I'm going to follow up with that with, with a good old bit of satisfaction. So, last time, we said that we were running a some sort of prize draw to reward people for sharing the articles on our website, and we teased that there would be a prize, and a prize there is. What is that prize? That prize is your very own O3C curated humble bundle. We have put together a bundle of 12 games. 12. That is a dozen. A chicken's dozen of games, <laughs> all available on Steam. And that incredible bundle can be yours if you do the following. What you need to do is go to our website, o3c.games, have a look at our amazing articles. There's loads of great stuff on there. Chris has written some great words about stuff. Minty's written some things about some other bits. I've done some stuff as well. It's all there. And what you need to do is find an article that you like, share it on social media, tag us, tag a friend, and then, hey presto, you're eligible for this prize draw. It's going to run for a couple of weeks, so just do it as much as you want. Just tag loads of people, read the articles, share the stuff, get people to follow us on Twitter, and uh, you'll be in with a chance of winning that fantastic bundle. Next week, I will tell you some of the games that are in that bundle. I'm, t- I'm just, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm milking the teasing, but, you know, hey, it out. that's what I am. I'm a cow. <laughs> so stay tuned for that, and please do engage with us on our social media platforms. Just go to our website, o3c.games, links to all our social media channels there, also links to our Patreon page, which you can also just cut out the middle website and go patreon.com slash o3c games and you can see all the amazing perks available to you there in exchange for some tears of pleasury and uh, oh we just we'd, we'd love to cuddle you all up so do that Oh, a bonus announcement. Starting on Wednesday, the 2nd of February, I will be a guest on the next season of Chat of the Wild, a fellow HyperX Podcast Network podcast. I join three Zelda heads, Jeremy, Brian and BC, and we are playing through the second DS Legend of Zelda game, Spirit Tracks, affectionately known as the Choo Choo One, uh, because you're in a train. Uh, there's also Choo Choo's. It's a Zelda enemy. It's a thing. doesn't matter. We do a dungeon or so a week and discuss the adventure as we go. We chat about all of the highs, all of the lows, and just the nichest of Zelda trivia uh, that you'll ever find. I'm absolutely thrilled to be a part of this season, and it's going to be a huge amount of fun. So do search for Chat of the Wild on your podcast platform of choice. Subscribe and tune in every Wednesday for the latest episodes. It's time to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. The stunning HyperX Quadcast S features dynamic, customizable RGB lighting, a convenient tap-to-mute sensor, and four selectable polar patterns, so it can broadcast crystal clear audio, whether you're gaming, streaming, podcasting, or impressing your remote colleagues and classmates. So what are you waiting for? Join the Quad Squad and tap in today with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. 
So we're back. It's uh, episode six of our Addenda, and uh, we've got another three games that we're going to crowbar into our list. I uh, don't know about you, but it's well, it's tough. It's 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 tough to find games to get rid of. It's a it's a full on juggling act. Imagine trying to juggle with a hundred balls. That's what we were doing. Now we're juggling with 120 balls. At least. You're going to drop some. <laughs> we're going to find out what those are. But before we do that, we're going to dive straight into talking about what we've been playing in the last week. And Minty's going to kick us off by telling us how he's getting on with, I assume, Shin Megami Tensei five, Among other things. Oh, hello there, chicken. Yes, mostly Shin Megami Tensei. I'm in the third netherworld area now. Uh. It's still great. I'm still combining my demons. I'm still smushing them together to make guy who rose inside a walnut shell or the huge long greyhound who has not left my party since getting him. And I am going to be taking him all the way to the end game, I'm sure. I've also, under your good advice, Jonathan, oh, no. I have finally got a positive win streak in repentance yay well done <laughs> today i had an excellent run as regular cane which i took to mother <laughs> to complete his post-it note i had a nice little moment where i went into a curse room i got the sacrificial altar i sacrificed my ball of bandages for brimstone oh get in that's that's the stuff you dream of oh and at that point, I was like, well, let's just slow down a bit because this is a one run. And yeah, I just had just, just, just one of those ones that was fun. That's good. That's what you want. A good broken good steamroller run. run. It cleansed the palate of my minus 83 win streak, <laughs> which I had prior <laughs> to that. So I'm not going to play it again for ages now because I want to preserve <laughs> that, uh, that lovely positive one. Fantastic. But the main thing that I have been playing this week is the Nintendo Switch Online's release of Banjo-Kazooie. Oh, oh I should have guessed. Yeah, should have remembered. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing it for about four hours. I'm about halfway through a 100% run. Wow. And I have to say, we have been so spoilt by this right analog stick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know whether it's just because the button layout on modern controllers does not lend itself at all well to mapping from an N64 controller, whether the N64 controller was just an awful controller to begin with, or because all of these early 3D games didn't know what to do with their camera. But Banjo-Kazooie is a good game. It's a great game, but I just, I, I just can't get on with this camera at all. And it's kind of upsetting me a little because I should be enjoying this game. It's an early masterpiece. I've, I've died too many times in ways that are not my fault because the camera got stuck behind a cactus or some such as that. Ugh. I don't know why N64 emulation is so tricky. From what I've read about it, it, it is tricky, but I just wish that when Nintendo releases these things, they'd at least make the camera movement a little bit smoother so that when you actually do use the right stick, it's like you're using the right stick. Mm. But there we go. I don't understand how these things work. <laughs> I think with, with N64 and emulation... It is the one platform out of my whole emulation setup that doesn't feel right on a standard Xbox controller now. Everything else I've got maps absolutely fine. But the combination of needing essentially six face buttons, but also, you know, all the other weird triggers and doodads and whatever on an N64 controller, there's just no satisfactory way of making that feel good. Mm. And and like you say, that to swap uh, the C buttons and plop them just straight onto the right analog stick doesn't work. It doesn't feel right. Uh, and it means that a lot of games are 
almost unplayable from the N64 unless you really, really consider how you're going to remap them individually, which I don't even know if you can do via the Switch Online. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of I'm quite sad that I didn't manage to get hold of one of those wireless N64 controllers that they sold at the dawn of the the Switch Online package mm. because they've just been out of stock ever since. Basically, I think they did one run of about ten controllers and that was it. <laughs> so maybe maybe in the future I'll, I'll get hold of one uh, because that really would change how I approach some of these games. It just like you say, it doesn't feel right, and not enough amendments are made to to make them feel more modern. In, in kind of the ways they have been re-released over the last few years. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I had a quick go of um, Banjo-Kazooie. I tried to play it on the Rare Replay collection when I had uh, when I borrowed my friend's Xbox for a bit. And um, yeah, I just got too frustrated with, with the, the dated camera controls that it was not enjoyable. It felt like I was, you know, fighting with that. And um, it just wasn't fun. It's a shame, like you said, because it feels like it... Again, obviously, obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to programming emulation and porting and all that kind of bollocks. But I mean, surely it can't be that hard just to be like, oh, here you go. Here's, here's the, let me just copy and paste these camera controls from Mario Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that. It's that simple. And and as you say, I don't know why they're not doing it. <laughs> you put a game card in. Control C, put the next one in, Control V, absolutely fine. I do not understand why we don't have that. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Code is just words. (laughs) (laughs) Open up Notepad, find the right bit, paste it across. Stop whinging. Exactly. Come on. (laughs) Camera, Control, Ref, Mario Odyssey, like replace Banjo-Kazooie with Mario Odyssey, and boom, you've got your camera done. Two lines. Two lines of code. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. That's it. Step it yeah. up, guys. Jeez. I think the main problem with Banjo Kazooie and its camera controls is because the C buttons in the in the game are sort of multi multifunctional, depending on whether you're holding the trigger. Oh. They're they, they're either camera controls, or if you hold the Z button, it'll sort of bring the bird out of the backpack. It'll shoot an egg, or it'll activate invulnerability. So if you're crouching to shoot an egg, but you want to change the camera all of a sudden you're doing the old birdie sprint straight into some lava. Never mind. <laughs> are you going persi- uh, to persist with it? Of course, yeah. It's a fantastic okay, game, um, despite the uh, newfound appreciation for the right analogue stick, which has not translated well to being thrust back into the past when it wasn't accounted for because it didn't really exist. Well, hey, uh, uh, have you played anything else? No. <laughs> As for me, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you just a very quick update on my Binding of Isaac progress because it has, I, I feel like I, I have kind of petered out with it now for a couple of reasons. First of all, I carried on doing the challenges that I said I was doing last week and I managed to do all of the challenges now. I've done all of them. There was one which was a fucking nightmare called Hot Potato. You basically play as the Tainted Forgotten who sort of like, you're controlling two characters you've got the soul form of him which is just a ghost that's flying around and then you've got the dead skull of him and you throw that dead skull around and usually you can then use your bone club with that skull to do damage in this challenge however you cannot do that you're simply just throwing this skull around and it explodes like a bomb every two and a half seconds which is powerful but also very dangerous 
and it was an absolute nightmare to try and beat. I'm surprised I did it. I didn't manage to like luck out by getting some like immunity to explosions or whatever. It was just patience and being careful. And there is a final challenge that you do called Delete This, which is an absolute riot. It is basically a entirely randomised run. Every room, the graphics in it are kind of random and you start with an item called TM Trainer and what TM Trainer does, it basically glitches every single item that you can pick up in the game going forward and it will randomly pick a combination of two to three different effects that could be caused by another item and just smush them together and go, there you go, that's what it does. It doesn't tell you what it does. It glitches all of the text, all of the icons, so you literally have no clue what you're picking up, what it might do, unless you use it and then go, right, what happened? And you can be like, oh, okay, that threw like a, a bogey at someone whilst also granting me a soul heart and blowing myself up or something. It means that it's, it's an absolute gamble, every single item you pick up. You could even pick up an item that spawns the victory trophy and just win straight away. That didn't happen to me. But I was I was quite fortunate because I I picked up an item that had like the, the properties of the Mega Mush item, which is sort of like, you, you know, in Mario, you get like the, the, the Mega Mushroom, which turns you absolutely giant and you just walk through and stomp. Big and, boy. Yeah, it's basically that. You turn giant and stomp everything and you're invincible and it's great. And I, I don't know what it was. I don't know what item it was that made me into that. And occasionally it would turn me back. I did, couldn't really work out what it was doing. But then something seemed to happen. It must have synergized with something else I picked up or something else I used. And basically I was just stuck in Mega Mush form. So I, I literally just stomped my way to an easy victory. So yeah, that was really good fun. That was that was a lot of fun. I've then sort of been trying to tick off a whole bunch of endings of the characters that I don't really want to play as. And the way I've been doing that is by loading up a co-op run with four controllers. I'm controlling one of them and the others are just the other characters that I need to get the endings for. It doesn't matter if they die, because if I just win with the character I'm controlling, then you get the endings ticked off. Oh. <laughs> and it's just not a fun experience doing it like that. I didn't didn't get any joy out of getting those few like little completion marks from them. So for now, I, I think I've put it down. A couple of other things I have played, though. Apparently, I started a trend. Last week, Chris, you talked about Little Inferno, so I played through it. Yeah. It's not it's not the first time <laughs> I've, I've played it. It's probably like the third or fourth time, and it is just a lovely, lovely, wonderful, whimsical game. It's just a satisfying, therapeutic game loop. It sort of fulfilled the same vibe as my Happy Colour app. And I was like playing Little Inferno in bed for half an hour or so before dropping off to sleep. Just buying some stuff, burning some stuff, reading some, you know, sort of charming <laughs> correspondence with my neighbour. And I like the, uh, the sort of puzzle element with trying to find all the combos. I find that very satisfying. But I also just really like the, the subtle story and, and the writing in the game. It's, yeah, it's just... it's really good. Oh, it's really, really good. Yeah. Fantastic little game. And and the other game that I've continued to play, as I promised, is Death's Door. I'm nearing the end of that now, and it is continued to be great fun. It is, it's, it's a really, really lovely, very polished game. But I must say, it does not have an original bone in its body. <laughs> there is nothing in it that hasn't been done before. And that's not to say that every game has to break the mould, but it's, it's, it's so mouldy that no, it's not. It's um. <laughs> I feel that it's kind of the archetype of that 
setup. It's a bit Zelda-like. It's got a bit of Metroidvania in it. It's a bit dungeon crawlery. It's got a really nice charm to uh, to the writing in it and a really beautiful sort of design. It's copy and pasted a lot of ideas from other things, a lot of Zelda stuff, a lot of other dungeon crawlery things, even some Mario stuff. And yeah, even though Death Stories, like I said, it's brilliant and it's I definitely recommend it to people if you haven't played a ton of these types of games before because it's probably going to be the best one that you play <laughs> but I'm enjoying it I must say I'm frustrated that there isn't a map in the game because the the, the areas are quite maze-like and it's, it's it's nice when you sort of discover them for the first time and uh, you know you sort of oh I wonder what's down there and then you find it sort of loops back around to where you were before but the point I'm at in the game now where I'm sort of going back through some of the older areas with the abilities that I've got now to try and unlock more health and upgrade my things and get all the secret things before I sort of go and tackle the final stuff. It's just frustrating because I I can't tell exactly where I am. I can't remember exactly where I've seen something and I don't really have the patience to uh, to just just wander around until I find it. I just kind of want to be like, right, no, I I know where I'm going because I can see it on the map and I've remembered I've marked it or something or it's marked on my map. But it feels like I'm being quite negative on the game, and it's I, 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 I am, which is strange because it is such a brilliant <laughs> game. It's so well made, and uh, yeah, I've just seen it before, you know. Less Death Store, more Death Seen It Before. Uh, I'd say, yeah, it's it's got a soft recommendation from me, with the condition that you haven't played many of these types of games before, or you just fancy a, a nice, safe game. But it is very, very good. It is good. Chris, what have you played? Tell me what I'm going to play next week. <laughs> Firstly, one you probably won't pick up. I started playing a Bejeweled slash Candy Crush clone Why? on the PlayStation called Frozen Why? Freefall. It's something to do. <laughs> you haven't finished Ocarina of Time. It, like, that's something to do. <laughs> it's uh, it's free to play. So many things are free to play if you already own them, though. Like, it's, <laughs> that's not a, it's not a reason. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know what takes me with these things. Like it, it follows the same model as any of those match three puzzles where levels will be impossible to beat for 10, 15 or 20 attempts until the game realizes you're not going to give them any money. And then it lets you have a decent stab at making it through. I just find it quite relaxing. It's like I've said before about games that you have to put no thought or effort into. Yeah. And and that's that's perhaps the best example of it. I know it fits better on a phone, but I just I don't use my phone for games very often. And yeah, I started the other day and it's become the thing I play for 10 minutes before I play something else, essentially. It's also the most media surrounding Disney's Frozen that I've ever consumed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, not, not strictly by choice, but I've never seen the film. I've never seen any of kind of the spin-off bits and, and whatever else that's probably on Disney+. Plus. So for all I truly know, the plot of the film revolves entirely around matching gems and, and triggering colourful <laughs> cascades. And and to be honest, I'm, I'm quite happy not to be corrected yeah. on that assumption. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> So I won't shatter that. I won't, I won't recommend it, obviously, <laughs> but it's something I have been playing here and there. Next, I decided to pick through my Vita collection to start playing a few of the games on the physical backlog. And at some point in the last year or so, I, I got a double pack from PlayAsia that had Foxyland 1 and 2 on one cartridge, like two platform games. And they were meant to be decent, not super long, and they seemed like good candidates to start building my completions for the year as well, because I haven't, haven't got around to that much so far. And they're pretty solid. Like the the first game is really quite basic. You just collect gems and cherries across about 40 or so short stages, I think. And I was probably done with it in an hour or so to to 100% it. Like it's not a long or tough game. 
The second game is, is a big step up in quality. So Foxyland 2, if you are going to pick up one, is the one to grab on, on the Switch or the PlayStation or the Xbox. It's, it's basically everywhere. It's got longer stages. It has a story. It's got much improved art and music. It's a bit more mechanically dense in its levels. So it's just a bit more interesting to actually play through each one. As I said, it is more of a challenge and it's just, it's a better game overall. Like some of the final stages got really tough. And in total, it probably took me maybe four hours to beat this one. But I did finish the whole thing. I got all the hidden unlockables and, and secret stages and everything else. And it was it was a good time. Now, I mentioned a long time ago, a team responsible for porting many games to the Vita in its twilight years was uh, a team called Rattalaker Games. And the, Fo- the Foxyland games, again, were helmed by them. So, you know, they were the ones that ported it across from, I think, the PC originally. And when I mentioned them before, I expressed a frustration that they had this real penchant, I guess, for uh, making platinum trophies very easy in their games as a way of making people pick them up to try and get people to pick up these indie games. And yeah, it certainly works for a lot of people. But it's another example of me like getting that platinum trophy and then feeling like I want to plow on and actually finish this properly because it just feels so harsh on the initial developer of the games not to see a bit more of what they put together, especially when they're not long games anyway. So, you know, to, to be given the Platinum Trophy before you finish an hour-long game feels like it starts to take the piss a bit. And I do enjoy trophy hunting on PlayStation platforms. I used to really enjoy achievement hunting, as, as I've mentioned before on the Xbox. But I don't think trophies or unlockables like this should come to the total detriment of the basic game experience itself. And it, it just makes me feel that it's got to be really disheartening for the developer to see people drop their games like an hour in because an arbitrary system has said, you're done. When, you know, they, they've probably gone to the effort of, of creating a game in the first place, getting it published digitally first on like a big storefront. And then I assume having to kind of fight and, and make contacts and whatever else to have it immortalized in a in a limited print physical release. So to <laughs> Bug Studio, who who did Foxyland 1 and 2, it's a good time. And I definitely recommend your two little games. Fans of simple platformers should check them out, sequel in particular. And, and to Rattalaker, like I've said previously, I'm very grateful that they helped keep the Vita afloat for as long as they did. And, you know, they, they had a good, uh, you know, they were really good at finding the type of quick indie experiences that perfectly suited the machine. But there was always that inherent cynicism in the way that they packaged games. And they do make you feel just a little <laughs> bit grubby. And, and I just wish they could have respected both, like, the creators of the works they were profiting from initially, but also the players who were buying and playing them a little bit more as well. Like, no one would have minded for their Platinum Trophy to play for an hour and a half rather than 45 <laughs> minutes. It's, it's not a big deal. It's just like, just just let us do a bit more, I think is important. The last thing, I have not played this week, but I have watched a good deal of, has been Lego Lord of the Rings, as oh, Georgia has been hopping through fantastic. it. And it looks really good. It's one I never played when it came out. I've said before, I think the Lego series has been remarkably consistent over the yeah. years with, you know, a few really high points. So you've got Lego Star Wars, obviously, that kicked off the whole format that still persists today. You've got Lego Harry Potter, which made me enjoy a world that I hadn't given two tosses about in either (laughs) book or film format. And then you've got kind of the the outliers like Lego City Undercover that showed how well the team at Traveller's Tales could apply their humour and design chops to something unburdened by other franchise expectations. And to, to watch Georgia play through it, Lord of the Rings seems to be one of the most layered of all their games. Like it has a really sprawling open world. It's got a rudimentary crafting system to it. It's got a way of unlocking and equipping gear to make any character be able to do most sort of ability things. So there's less of that kind of character switching that is always a bit of a chore in the late game of, of Lego titles. 
And and it also has one of the best uses of, of licensed audio assets I've seen in their games because something like Lego Jurassic World, for example, that I did play through, never seemed to be able to properly blend the film dialogue with the in-game effects. And it meant that the cutscenes in gameplay always just felt a little bit off. Whereas Lord of the Rings, by contrast, if you weren't aware of how it was put together, you genuinely believe the dialogue has just been written for the game. Like it's just very, very professionally done. So, you know, kudos to them at the time, uh, which was, you know, over 10 years ago now, I imagine. But good job. I could be wrong, but I think the Lego Lord of the Rings game was the first to use dialogue audio from the I film. Think, I think you're right. Which I actually was a bit disappointed with because I I really liked yeah. the, you know, the sort of silent miming of a story. Mm. And I think it led to some incredibly creative and very, very funny um, moments, especially like in the Harry Potter one. There's a, there's a moment yeah. where when Cedric Diggory is killed which is devastating in the book it's really really emotional in the films but in the game the way that Dumbledore breaks it to Cedric Diggory's dad is he basically shows him the instructions of how to put Cedric Diggory back together again and then just like chucks it away um and he's like nope sorry mate um and it's just like that's just really really funny and I feel that when when it's just Lego reenacting a film it's yeah. like well it loses some of its charm i, I do agree uh, i like I the do subversion agree for sure. that comes with uh with some of those other lego games there's still elements like that, that that kind of still work they have that slapstick edge like i'm not the lord of the rings aficionado but either <laughs> who, who is who is it who dies out of either sean bean or the one that looks like sean or, bean yeah, sean obviously bean. it's sean bean <laughs> there we go okay so when when sean bean's character who god knows what he's called because like like boromir. i said boromir there we go i've heard of that name when boromir is killed he is slain with a banana brilliant <laughs> and it's just like sticking out of his body whilst they're delivering this really emotional scene on top you don't remember that scene from the film <laughs> <laughs> the umbongo sponsored urakai <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as I say, I'm I'm watching it, not playing it, but it does make me quite excited for when the Skywalker saga eventually releases this I'm year. I'm so looking forward uh, to you know, that. The Lego game that's been in development for a long time. Even if, as we have talked about in our little group chat, the headlines this week suggest that everyone at TT Games is being ground to the bone with crunch and overtime to get it done. You never want that for a team. If it was aiming to launch around the time of the last film, it may have been a bit more understandable to try and push for that release parity, but it's already two years after yeah. that. You know, the, the boat has sailed and it just feels like they need to let their staff have a rest. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, there's no point to be driving people into the ground at this point. If it's missed a few deadlines, the vast majority of people are going to be okay if they just say, we need a few more months to, to polish yeah. it off. So yeah, I, I'm excited to play it. Even as I say, I'm not a Star Wars fan either, but I've always enjoyed the game. So it's something that is on my kind of uh, anticipated list for the later in the year. Yeah, I surprised myself with actually how excited I got for uh, Skywalker Saga. Just this last week, they revealed the release date and uh, put like a gameplay sort of trailer out. And I think I've played both the original trilogy Star Wars game and the prequel trilogy game or maybe i played the one that was put them put them together yeah and they're, they're, yeah they're really really good fun you know I, I i love star wars um i mean i've got a lot of issues with what happened with the sequel trilogy but i think that actually it being told in a lego way is gonna make me enjoy it probably more so <laughs> i'm looking forward to seeing how that works it's just it's just a great universe to spend some time in and uh i think it's gonna come after it's coming out in april so i'll have had time to do pokemon legends arceus We've got Kirby in March. We've got Elden Ring in February. So that's, you know, that's a game a month. A lot of games. A lot of games. Plus 
all the other ones. <laughs> so, shall we move on to the reason we are here to talk about another three brilliant games that are going to go into our lists? Great, yes. Yes. Minty, start us off. What is going into your list? Well... When we think of Doom, um, we think of such things as fast-paced sci-fi shooting action with a hellish twist. Demons pouring forth from strange portals opened up on Mars by hubristic scientists. The invasion of Hell's forces seems non-stop, breakneck and almost insurmountable, save for you, the Doom guy and a couple of boomsticks. <laughs> We know Doom is a great game. It appeared on mine and Chris's list. It's got a huge modern community as well as a sizable quotient of speedrunners. People love it. I love it. I'm also really bad at it. <laughs> I'm not quick enough to do well on any difficulty past I'm too young to die. And at that level, it's just a bit sparse and a little bit boring. I like playing with invulnerability cheats. Like I grew up playing No Monsters mode on the PC, which is probably why I never got good at it. <laughs> or any first person shooter for that matter. Doom 64, on the other hand, I am quite good at. Um, the constraints of the N64 cartridges meant that the developers had to cut a good percentage of the demons that appeared in Doom and Doom 2. Less demons means less types of things that can kill you. <laughs> two enemies that don't make an appearance are the Chain Gunner and the Spider Mastermind, two hit scanners that can completely shred you in seconds. Like most ranged enemies in this game will just lazily lob balls of fire and goo at you with plenty of room to dodge, so... It's a little bit easier, I find. Comparing the earlier PC iterations and Doom 64, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the latter wasn't affiliated with the franchise at all. It's got a completely different feel to it, which I think is down to the fact that this wasn't a Doom game made by id Software, but by our good bloody friends over at Midway, famous of course for Mortal Kombat and Rampage, among others. These two games in particular have a very definite feel to their sprite work which i think translates over to doom 64 i don't know what they do when they design their sprites like maybe they're they're pre-rendered I, I vaguely know what that means they, <laughs> they they straddle the chasm between the recognizable doom ip and the distinctive vibes of real people in ninja costumes jumping around in front of a green screen <laughs> it awakens something primal in the mind like there's almost an imperceptible fear that if any of these demons catch you they're going to rip out your spine or uppercut you into a lake of acid and it works like doom 64 is far more unsettling than previous games in this series and it establishes a wildly different atmosphere from the start if you're familiar with the band uh, 1349 and their albums at all let's say that Doom is Liberation, Doom 2 is Hellfire, and that would make Doom 64 Revelations of the Black Flame. Still a great album, but quite a departure from their earlier work. Plot-wise, it continues straight on from Doom 2, after ridding Earth of the demons that invaded from the Mars research facilities and avenging your pet rabbit, <laughs> you learn that the mother of all demons has been resurrecting her slain children, giving them new life as twisted scraps of hellish flesh. Of course, it's up to you to stop her once and for all, and upon her defeat, you decide to stay in hell and make sure that nothing emerges ever again. Whereas the monsters in Doom and Doom 2 rush and chase you, they're necromantic brethren in this game. They, they lurch, they trudge. They're still threatening, but just with, a, with an added level of slow menace. The monster sprites have an almost ephemeral quality to them in stark contrast to the crisp and clear pixels of classic Doom enemies, they're weirdly sort of hazy with smooth edges and a bit greater detail. Levels are wildly dark with lighting enhancing mood instead of vision. 
Like level design flips from bright red skyboxes, monolithic machinery and wall textures made of human entrails and bones from the earlier games to almost medieval stonework, arcane libraries and sombre carvings. Its malevolence is more of a fantastical or magical nature rather than a uh, a slasher film set in space. <laughs> Gone are the wild guitar-led MIDI tracks that ape classic rock and heavy metal songs, replaced with dreary, moody soundscapes courtesy of Warbury Hodges. It drones, it clangs, at once ambient and incidental, it fits in really amazingly with the overall feel of the game. It's structured more like Doom 2's Megawad format than the episodic Doom, but with more secret levels. And these secret levels each have an artifact that display a message in red text when you pick them up. Uh, it's something like, you get the feeling it was not meant to be touched. <laughs> they're, they're creepy sigils to begin with. And then to have this ominous message daubed on the screen is really quite scary, actually. And these three uh, sigils are used as keys during the final battle with the Mother of Demons, crushing the portals that her minions spore from. And they also power up Doom 64's new weapon, the Unmaker. It's like a... It's like a laser rifle made out of skeleton bits. Uh, bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it starts out life as, a, as basically just a red plasma gun that we know and love from the earlier games. But as you power it up with those demon keys, its fire rate, its damage, and its number of lasers increases. It can turn the final boss into Swiss cheese in a matter of seconds, and it clears rooms almost as well as the BFG. And also a nice touch is when you pick it up, instead of having a message that is like, oh, you picked up the shotgun, or you got a health bonus. It just says, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I love it. I love the campaign. I love the secret levels. I love the weird fun levels you unlock when you complete the game. I love the feel of it as well. I'm playing it now thanks to the re-release on the Switch a couple of years back. I first picked it up from a CEX-type place in the covered market for eight quid when I was 12. I've enjoyed it for years, and I'm finally happy to give it a well-deserved place in my list. It's going in at number 71, and I think it's going to replace Banjo-Kazooie. Whoa. What? <laughs> I just... <laughs> that, cam that camera's really sour it's, to what it, hasn't well, it? <laughs> I've been thinking about this as I've been playing it this week. It's not just the camera, but it's also the fact that if you die in a level, you have to get all the collectibles over again. I, don't, I just don't like oh, that. Yeah. I don't That's like it. Gopping. <laughs> so it kind of stresses me out to to 100% to everything in one level in one go. Yeah. It's it's kind of mitigated by the fact that you can do those suspend points on the uh, Switch Online version, but... Oh, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, Banjo-Tooie is the superior game in the series, so that's going to stay in, and uh, we'll say goodbye to Banjo-Kazooie for Doom 64. Wow. That's fair There enough. we go, there we go. Have you ever played, Minty, the PlayStation 1 port of Doom? I have not, no. I've never had a PlayStation. Because you might really enjoy it if you can find a way to emulate it, because that was... Published or ported, maybe both, maybe neither, I'm not sure, but by Midway as well. Hmm. And they added a lot of the kind of lighting style that was in Doom 64, all the soundtracks by the same guy who did 64 yeah. as well. And it, it really changes the tone of it. Like it doesn't run as well because it's on lesser hardware than kind of a, you know, zipping PC from the time. But it's it's held up sometimes as one of the very good like PC to console ports. Oh, nice. Because it, it changed things enough to be kind of worth revisiting. So... Yeah, check out, if nothing else, just some footage of it, because it might make you go, oh, I'd like to <laughs> <Yeah>. play that. <laughs> find that on YouTube, and I'll listen to that as I go to bed tonight. There we go. So, my game this week, I'll start by saying it's it's rare for a game to be in my list that I haven't beaten. Oh. <laughs> in fact, 
originally there were I think there were only a couple of games in my top 100 that I hadn't beaten but those are both games that I have since replayed and beaten uh, namely Panzer Dragoon Saga and uh, Xenoblade Chronicles which uh, remained uncompleted on the DS but I uh, obviously when I got the del- the definitive edition on the um, on the Switch I happily played that to the very very end but my sixth amendment is for a game that I also haven't beaten yet yet and I say yet because it's a game I'd still class as one I'm currently playing even though I haven't actually given it a whirl for a good few months now but I fully intend to get back to and beat Returnal at some point oh. ah. yes <laughs> so Returnal was the first proper next gen game I experienced after getting my PS5 like I tasted the next to zero load times with Demon Souls I'd felt the full gamut of dual sense rumblings in Astrobot and a couple of other games you know show me that 4k and 60 frames per second gameplay weren't mutually exclusives but Returnal felt like it was more than a tech demo or a showcase but a game that was built with imagination knowing little bounds being constrained by very little that couldn't be handled by the PS5. I remember seeing coverage of the game before it came out and just really not being interested in it like just not being bothered at all it just looked like another flashy third person shooter nothing I hadn't seen before. But then it was revealed that the game was in fact a roguelike, which is something we haven't seen on this scale. In in fact, you know, name me a, another roguelike that isn't an indie game using 2D pixel art. Oh, uh, uh, there's, exactly. there's got to be some. There's got to be some, but yeah, <laughs> I'll take your point. Oh, must be. But yeah, here we are, though, with a fully fledged, almost first party, AAA, 3D, sci-fi, third person action game that was using the brilliantly simple and genius framework of a classic roguelike game. So you play as Celine, uh, an astronaut who crash lands on an alien planet, and soon you start to realise that you've been here before. You stumble across the remains of previous yous, and every time you seemingly die, you wake up on your ship crash landing once again, rinse and repeat. I think there are two crucial factors that go into making a roguelike successful. It needs to feel good to play because you need to not be put off by spending a lot of time playing it. And, you know, the basic gameplay mechanics have to be tight as a kite if that's going to (laughs) work. Because you also need to not be put off by jumping in for another run with just the basic abilities that you have at the start of a run it needs to feel so so good otherwise you know when you start a new run you'll just be like man this feels too slow this feels rubbish i can't be bothered but the other factor that goes towards making a good roguelike is a good sense of overall progression otherwise that need to go back in for another run and another run and another run is is going to wear thin pretty quickly now some roguelikes really master this by having your character level up so that you'll be markedly stronger on the next loop like in games such as Children of Mortar or Undermine both of which I played last year some games rely entirely on the story reveals and revelations to keep you coming back like Children of Mortar again or something like Hades that you know just is 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 continually brilliant to find out more about the story Some just get the satisfying gameplay so right that you just want to keep doing runs so you can tick things off a list, a la The Binding of Isaac. 
Returnal gets both of these things right, I think. The story is revealed in minute bite-sized snippets. Some runs you may get a little story beat by finding a voice memo on the corpse of a former you. Sometimes you may stumble across a version of your house mysteriously appearing on the uh, on this planet that will reveal some hidden truths. Sometimes you might not find anything, but the constant promise of finding out a little bit more about who your character is, what this planet is all about, why you've ended up here. That's that's tantalising enough to keep you coming back for more. And the way that it will give you like a good dollop of story when you reach a new biome is, is a really, really good carrot on a stick, especially when each of the biomes are, are so beautifully and thoroughly designed and built. They've all got, I mean, they've just all got such a clear concept and design and also play host to enemies and bosses that that feel like they're part of that environment rather than just you know palette swapped and beefed up versions of of other enemies it it makes this world feel like a tangible and grounded place and and one that you want to explore and investigate and that brings me to the other point of a roguelike must be fun to play and this is a big claim but I think Returnal is possibly the game that feels better to play than any other game I can think of. Oh boy, that's a bold one. Let's readjust my bollocks before I go into this <laughs> next bit. I know I've said that before, I don't really like playing first-person games on consoles because I feel that like mouse and keyboard controls are leagues better than dual analogue sticks. And even though Returnal is a third-person shooter, the core controls are essentially exactly the same as a first-person shooter. You use one stick to move, another to aim. But having that increased visibility and perspective that comes with having the camera behind your character, as opposed to the camera being your character, somehow makes all the difference for me. And it's crucial that you have a good and clear sense of your surroundings because you need to be as deft and precise in your physical movements as you do with your attacks. And Housemark just nail it so so well with this game like i worried that it may feel a bit like when you play skyrim or fallout in third person where it feels like you're basically you know you're still just controlling the camera but the camera just happens to have legs but you know this is exactly how i feel a third person metroid would work in 3d unlike i mean to be fair i never actually played metroid other m which i know has elements of that but from what i've been led to believe it wasn't what people wanted but it's got all the fluidity and excitement of like a 2d metroid game in returnal with you being able to jump and dash and dodge and grapple and swing and teleport whilst also being able to keep full focus on how you're attacking with just a a brilliant variety of weapons and items and gadgets and you also get like a melee sword attack which it just feels so good to use and one of the reasons for this is it is complemented perfectly by the incredible tech inside the DualSense controller which subtly makes itself known right from the start like you step out of your ship on this planet into the rain and you can feel the gentle pitter patter of the precipitation in your palms and you can feel the the clump of your space boots on the alien ground and the whoosh of your suit's power as you dash through the air like the subtlety of these are brilliant it's there to enhance not to show off like when you run under a bridge in the rain the raindrop vibrations stop because there is no rain it grounds you in the game it's just it's beautiful and the adaptive triggers are essential for operating your firearms whereby you hold your firing trigger halfway down to fire your weapon as normal and then you fully depress it to release its alternative fire 
And without that resistance provided by the adaptive triggers that, that helps you know where you're at in terms of pulling down an analog trigger, this would not be a viable control method at all. Uh, but instead, it's perfectly done so that you don't need to worry about executing a button combo to launch a special attack. You don't even need to worry about pressing a different button, even if it's like a centimetre away from that finger. You can do it immediately when it's needed, even in the heat of battle. It's just so satisfying. The impact that you get from, from hits, especially with your melee attacks, feel so good. You really feel the weight of when you're, you're attacked with, uh, you know, anything stronger than uh, gunfire. And you just, you, you feel it from, from, from every angle. It's, it's, so, it's so essential for knowing where you are and knowing where your enemies are. And I mean, if you couple that with playing with the 3d sound on like the um playstation 5 headset it's just it's so immersive there's nothing that feels as good as this game and you know a lot of that stuff can feel like gimmicks um you know you can say oh, i want to buy this new console what can it do well it rumbles more and it sounds like it's coming from somewhere over there it's like those <laughs> <laughs> those those things account for nothing unless they're used creatively and like i said subtly it's about enhancing the experience and my god it does but the game is flipping hard and it's flipping long as well like a full run on the binding of isaac will probably never be longer than an hour not not by a long way but if you want to maximize your run on returnal then you're looking at the best part of an hour per biome and even though the game is broken into acts with like three biomes in each so you won't ever need to do i think there's nine or 12 i can't remember i, I don't know i haven't done them but you'll never need to do all of them in one session it still means that like my average runs were starting to be around about two hours in length which always inevitably ended in failure <laughs> to unlock something and like in initially as well the game didn't allow you to suspend your run so if you wanted to take a break you couldn't close the game and play something else fortunately this has been changed now but it still only allows you to suspend a run once and it doesn't address the fact that it's it's quite difficult to invest two or th two to three hours into something that may be redundant and this was the point that i'd got to which is only to the end of the first act and the final boss of um, you know that act is obviously really really hard and there's no quick way of getting to it so you could at least like practice it before spending hours getting there but it's it's so annoying because i know that if i could just get over this cusp i'd be starting a new act getting a whole bunch of story and also shortening my runs until you know i got to the end of the next act but you know hopefully that would that would get me back into the game and like i don't really know what the solution is like either the developers make the game a bit more forgiving by adding in checkpoints or difficulty settings or I get enough free time to get good at the game again and break the back of it. And I'd be up for any of these solutions because the game is so, so good and I really, really want to experience more. Like, I know that we're talking right now in the shadow of Microsoft acquiring yet another enormous video game company in their ongoing quest to some sort of monopoly. But I'm so glad that there are companies like Housemark and Bluepoint who are officially part of the Sony family now. And if Housemark continue to put out products of this quality, even if they are brutal, then I'll continue to own a PlayStation. So it feels a little unfair of me to place the game at a massively high point, even though I think that it has the potential to be a top 50 game once I've played the other two thirds of it. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so I think I, I'm actually, I'm going to slot it 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is about my thinking at the moment, but that that Wario buffer <laughs> uh, that I think that I've created is is gonna it's gonna include this as well, and I'm actually gonna slot it in between Nino Kuni and God of War in that little buffer bracket. They're just having a little party in there. Yeah, exactly. Wario is bouncer on the the doors either side of the room, and then you're just you're just piling these games in the center. <laughs> exactly. I've said before about I've got a lot of fondness for games that I know will never feature on somebody else's list. And it's why I'm going to cling to some games, even though I know they're not necessarily that good. I'm definitely going to keep Jurassic Park on the Game Boy in my list because <laughs> forever it was the first game I owned. I love it, yeah. but I'm going to have to get rid of a game this week. I mean, I've only ever met one person other than me and my brother that's even played it. And they got in touch with me after hearing it appear in my list to say, oh, I remember that game. I'm going to continue to be a fan of this game. And I'll think of it every now and again with great fondness. But if nothing else, I will be glad to rid Chris of its shadow after it proved <laughs> <laughs> it proved to be your undoing in the O3 oh. sequence finale. So you can join me in saying goodbye to King's Quest VIII, Mask of Eternia. Sorry, Mask <laughs> of Eternity. Oh, so unfair. I mean, it's not unfair that it's getting the boot. It's unfair <laughs> that I lost on that. <laughs> but we're not going to think about it. We're not going to go back to that. We're just going to be in the here and now. We're going to be present, present for the episode. And I will join you in, in waving farewell to King's Quest. Chris, why don't you finish us off with your amendment? I talked quite a lot last week about lockdown number one. Mm. And Little Inferno was a game that I rediscovered in that period when it got its physical release on the Switch. And today's game is one that I discovered for the very first time <laughs> during that period as well. Now, my emulation station, I've already mentioned it once today in passing, talking about the, the N64 controller, but for anyone that is new, new listeners, this is my affectionate name for my portable hard drive that holds just about every game ever made, up to and <laughs> including the Sega Dreamcast. But the reason I own that, the reason I put that project together was it was built primarily to allow me to hear about an old game, for instance, on a podcast or via YouTube or something, and then have immediate access to play it. And in the first lockdown, that project was in its infancy. I hadn't even bought my laptop at that stage, but I was still essentially thinking along the same lines with my Vita as the stand-in. You know, I'd use that handheld, even with its kind of lesser power, as, as a little gaming machine that could run custom firmware and was perfectly serviceable for almost anything up to the PlayStation 1. It's, it's a lovely little machine. I, I love it very much. <laughs> but today's game is Balloon Kid on the original Game Boy. Oh, wow, and yeah. I blame Jeremy Parrish and his Bananas Video Game Works YouTube series for alerting me to this one. That series, for anyone who's never dug through it, started as a chronological look at all original Game Boy titles, which is a huge undertaking because there's thousands of releases on that platform. But over time, it's expanded to include more and more consoles and machines. And these days, it's like a ridiculous sprawling series that encompasses basically all releases for all platforms from the <laughs> mid-80s onwards. Wow. And Game Boy Works might be more progressed than some of the others. So, for instance, he's working through the Sega SG-1000 at the moment. But, you know, the effort to fold all these project tendrils together is, is quite remarkable. <laughs> and his weekly upload schedule means that I've been exposed to hundreds of classic games I'd never previously heard of because of his diligence i guess so i think out of all the ones I've, I've listened to and watched him kind of talk through balloon kid is my favorite of all the ones that i've unearthed it's a sequel to balloon fight on the nes a game that basically no one cares about <laughs> certainly not me it retools the floating mechanics of that arcade style game to become an extremely individual take on platforming for the time 
So you're a little girl who has to save her goon of a brother who's floated away after grabbing too many helium balloons, largely reversing gender roles of the time in games. You move right to left, reversing platforming tropes of the time. And every stage, controversially, is an auto-scroller, which reverses the generally accepted logic that these stages are universally shit <laughs> because they're, they're very good in this game. Now, the basic mechanics of the thing are really simple. If your character is holding a balloon, you can float by kind of tapping the button, but at any time you can release your balloon and that lets you then drop down and run along the ground. So it's it's a platform game, but with amendments, I suppose. When you don't have a balloon, it's then a mad dash to, to reinflate one when you do need to be lifted up again to, to get across a dead end or a gap or whatever that you can't cross just by hopping. And there's eight stages, I think. There's a boss at the end of each one. It's a relatively early Game Boy game. You, you can picture it and you've probably got a good idea. But it's got a feel that elevates it somehow. And there's a care to it all that's so often missing, especially in games of that era. And something that sets it apart from its peers, it's just, it's really hard to put your finger on it. But it's maybe mechanically more interesting than some of its contemporaries. It does buck some of those trends I mentioned earlier. But even so, like in isolation, none of those individual characteristics are enough to make this game the cut above that it feels for me. And that's because, as with so many of the games of this list, it ends up being about personal context as well. Thinking back to the things on, on my list, the reason a game like Comic Zone persists on my list, and yes, it is staying after a recent playthrough, <laughs> I can say, it's partly down to kind of what it does differently to other 16-bit games of that era. You know, for that game, it was how it refined its side-scrolling beat-em-up genre. It was partly due to my relationship with it, though. So, you know, the, the time I first played it, the memory of the, the chunky Mega Drive pad in my hands, the CD soundtrack that came with the game, the huge sprites that made it seem just impossibly futuristic <laughs> compared to the other games I was playing at the time. Like, nostalgia is a, is a huge driver for a lot of the games we, we choose for these personal lists, as you've just evidenced, Jonathan, by <laughs> maintaining Jurassic Park's position. Yep. But, you know, Balloon Kid, why did a game released in 1990 and then played by me 30 years later <laughs> resonate so hard? You have to indulge me for a moment as I try to explain a bit about my perception of the elasticity of time. Absolutely go for it. If you take an hour in a regular day, playing a game that I enjoy for that hour makes the hour feel quick. Doing work for that hour makes it feel slow. Doing work when I know there is an imminent deadline for that hour makes it feel quick. Playing a game that I've ceased to enjoy makes it feel slow. Napping for that hour makes it feel non-existent. <laughs> and during that first lockdown... That hour somehow was all of these things simultaneously at all times. The first lockdown was a time that we were suddenly all permitted by the state to play more games, to watch more TV, to, to catch up or even start any number of hobbies that we put off. And yet there was a bubbling pressure for me and I'm sure lots of other people that meant I struggled to really enjoy anything. And living with a, a collective panicked mania is not healthy. You know, it's just, it's deeply unpleasant. And while some people may have been able to kind of sideline some of those feelings, for many others, including I think all of us in different ways here, the loss of routine meant that mental health was collectively in the toilet. And I don't think I'd be alone in saying that a big part of why gaming or any other fun hobby is fun is because it is the antithesis of work and non-fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you work through the stick to enjoy the carrot. That's 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 why I play games. It's like it's it's what I do as the the opposite side of the coin. But during that period of lockdown, I, I couldn't commit to anything, at least until Animal Crossing basically became my job in, in the middle of April. <laughs> I'd sit down to play a game, I'd play it for five minutes, and then I'd turn it off. And I was just constantly convinced I had something that needed doing. And the last time prior to that that I felt that persistent fear and pressure was when I was doing my teacher training. 
And I'd work for what felt like 20 hours of my day, sit down for two minutes for a break, turn on my 3DS or whatever else I might have had to hand. And within seconds, I'd close it up because I felt like a weird guilt that there were still things to do. But Balloon Kid was the first time in that, in that whole period, in that first lockdown, that I really allowed myself to switch off. And it's impossible not to look back at that and not feel like a sense of gratitude and relief that this little 30-year-old first-party Nintendo platformer had allowed me genuine release. And, you know, today it's 2022. I can't even think <laughs> anymore, but we're, we're still in a pandemic. We're in a very different stage of the pandemic, but it's likely to exist in some way for forever. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's taken a couple of years to truly be able to reflect on some of that collective trauma, essentially, that everyone was experiencing back in the early stages of our generations, just total upheaval. For now, most people, I think, have found a routine that works around the hand we've been dealt. I even remember talking about Balloon Kid on the show back when, you know, our episodes used to fly by Mm. and I basically just said, it's good. I liked it. And that was that. But, you know, none of what I'm saying today is suddenly made up. I'm not manufacturing this as a story to make more of this than, than it is. It's just that at the time in 2020, everything was unknowable. Like if, if you listen back to any episodes we did back then, for months, we didn't even mention COVID on the show. We, we just had vague allusions to, oh, it's, uh, it's been a bit tough lately, hasn't it? And that, that was it. It's like we didn't want to say the word. I don't know. It's just so strange. Like anyone now could, could get a Game Boy or find a way of emulating it, boot up Balloon Kid and get nothing from it at all. But it doesn't detract from what I got from it at that point. The memory of the Vita in my hands, the the flickering sprites, my efforts to unlock all of the achievements that had been retrofitted into the game. You know, I played it for several days, essentially, just here and there, and I properly mastered it. And that in itself was perhaps the first accomplishment of lockdown number one that made me think, I did that. I achieved something. It was just something that I could actually say, I've worked through that and I've finished it. So yeah, a really important game, even if in and of itself, it's very, very simple. In terms of my list, the original Halo is going to leave the list today. Mm. I really love it, but a lot of the games leaving at the moment are those that are great games, but I just don't have personal stories attached to them. Yeah, Mechanically, Halo made first-person shooters work on console. It's a hugely important game. But if you said, you know, what's important about it to you? I'd be like, well, I enjoyed it. <laughs> it's like, I, I can't tell you anything else. So yeah, Balloon Kid will sit somewhere in the late 80s, maybe, I think, of the list even if the game itself launched at the turn of the 90s. (laughs) You know, bad times in 2020, but a good game. uh, And I'm very grateful for it. So there we go. Another three games. Three games that that are are similar in some ways. First of all, we had (laughs) Doom 64. And then we had Returnal before finally Balloon Kid. Why not? If you've enjoyed this episode, <laughs> or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do reach out to us on social media at O3C Games on pretty much everything. Uh, and please do share the podcast on your social media platforms. At the moment, you can even share our articles from our website, being with a chance of winning an extraordinary bundle of Steam games, which we are thrilled to be giving away. So please do do that. If you want to take us to task individually, you can also do that. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I am at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. And please do join us next week for another set of amendments. Goodness knows. I mean, literally, goodness knows what they'll be. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Need some adventure in your life? 
What Mad Universe is a podcast where two guys delve into the history of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, and the impact it's had on pop culture. Everything's the same politically, but we have ray guns. The, the actual motive isn't to explore something that's, quote, yeah. scientifically possible. Or... But neither is Star Wars, and I know there's arguments about that, but I would definitely consider Star Wars science fiction. You haven't it's... read Dune! You have... No, I haven't. You can never be the Kwisatz Haderach. What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. The O3C Podcast is part of the HyperX Podcast Network. HyperX is our sponsor and the maker of the acclaimed Quadcast and Quadcast S microphones. Quadcast USB mics look and sound amazing and they're packed with features. With four selectable polar patterns you'll get great sound no matter what you're recording. The included shock mount and pop filter mean you won't have to shell out extra cash for a great setup. Then there's the eye-catching LED indicator and tap-to-mute sensor, so you can tap in and tap out to stop broadcast accidents. It's time for you to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast and Quadcast S.